John 12. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, <clears throat> why this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for one day for my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to, the, to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. <clears throat> Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. <clears throat> and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The word of the Lord. 
When, uh, when I'm doing premarital counseling with a young couple who's looking to get married, there's a couple questions that I try to always ask, and one of them is something along these lines. And it's, it's a question that was asked of Sarah and, and I, Sarah and me asked of us. I don't know how you say that. It was asked of us um, 20 years ago when we were going through premarital counseling, and it was this simple question. How much money can you spend without telling your spouse? Up to $20? Up to $200? A similar sentence or question is something like this. What can you buy without consulting with your spouse? Ready? On the count of three, answer. And one will say lunch, and the other one will say a new car. A lot of that has to do with our inborn assumptions, assumptions about what is valuable and how much it's worth. And really, it goes back to your family of origin and what matters most to you as a person. You see, in some families, they'll spend a lot of money on vacation. Others think that's a waste. They would rather spend it every week on going out to dinner. Some families will put all their money into savings so they have nothing to worry about years down the line and others spend all their money on their yard, and others on their clothes. In each one, you see what is valued underneath it. And every one of us assumes that how we spend money and what we put our money into is what's right. It's one of the big challenges when couples come together. You can think about it uh, more clearly in just one particular area that you might spend money on, gifts, buying gifts for other people, right? Are you the sort of person that's willing to spend a lot of money to buy gifts for other people? Or do you feel like that's a waste? You spend almost nothing. The question is, or rather the answer that's seen in that, is what you value. For example, if you value people's approval of you, you're going to spend a lot of money on gifts on them. You want them to like you. If, on the other hand, you value security, financial security, you might be more stingy and think it's a waste to buy lavish gifts for others. Ultimately, it's a question of what you value ultimately. What's most important to you is the foundation that's under all of your assumptions. What's most important to you is the blueprint for how you view the world and your actions in the world. In Jesus' final week, which we're looking at today, the actions and responses of those around him reveal their view of him and what they ultimately value. So the setting in John chapter 12 that we had read just a few minutes ago is a banquet that's being held for Jesus. Now, the setting is this. It's in a town called Bethany, just a few miles from Jerusalem, it's a town where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the siblings, live. A few weeks earlier, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. It was an amazing thing. And so now they're having a banquet in honor of Jesus. The whole village is there celebrating. And it's the Saturday before Palm Sunday. So it's like last night. They're having this big feast. The whole village is there. The very next day, Jesus will ride from Bethany into Jerusalem to the shouts of the crowd saying, Hosanna, here comes the king. But by the end of the week on Friday, Jesus is arrested, crucified, killed, and buried. And it's on this Saturday night, 
before he rides into Jerusalem, as the feast is happening and the entire village is gathered, that we read what Mary does. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary, verse 3, it reads, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So what Mary does is take a jar, a vase of this thing called nard. Nard was extracted from a plant in northern India. Now, this is a day and age before massive shipping, before trains, before trucks, before airplanes. To bring a perfumed extract ointment from northern India was incredibly rare and incredibly expensive. Judas later complains this bit of nard could have been sold for 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So basically, this was the equivalent of a year's salary. Whatever your year's salary is, think about it in those terms. This is a year's salary for you, and she pours it out all in one day. It's a pretty expensive gift. On top of that, Mary probably has this as a family heirloom that had possibly been passed down for generations. And if you think about it this way, in that day and age, women did not own anything. They could not own land. They could not own property. They could not own houses. They didn't have cattle and sheep. It was all owned by men. The fact that Mary is able to use this and pour, that out, pour this out means that it is hers. In a day and age when there was nothing else that was hers, In fact, it was not unlikely that the only things that she owned were the clothes she wore and this nard. It's the most valuable thing to her by far. It might be akin to if you own your house, the value of your house and what it means to you, especially if you've been in it for decades. But what she does is she pours this out on Jesus' feet, anointing him. Now, you've heard that in that day and age, they would wash people's feet when they came in for a banquet, but you didn't anoint people's feet with oil. You reserved that for kings. And the only people who did washing of feet or anointing of feet were servants. So, of course, Mary is not only pouring out this expensive gift, she's taking the form of a servant underneath Jesus' feet, acknowledging him as her master and her king. It's extravagant. What she does is unheard of. Nobody would have done what she did. I had a friend uh, back in college, and I was working with him at a Young Life camp, and he he was the sort of guy that was very generous. In fact, he had this, this way of thinking about himself that was like, if somebody says, hey, I like something that you have, he would give it to them. If it was a shirt that he was wearing, he would make sure it was washed and then give it to them. And I really saw him one time standing there with his baseball hat on, and somebody said, oh, I really like that hat. That's a cool hat. And he gave it to the guy. He said, I want you to have it. It was a discipline, a practice of saying, these things don't matter to me. I care that you care about it. It's yours. Now, What Mary is doing is incredibly unheard of. It would be the equivalent of saying, hey, buddy, it's not your hat I like, it's your house. And him handing me the keys and the deed and walking away and saying, it's yours. The very thing that she owned, the thing that mattered most to her, she pours out 
It was stupidly lavish and ridiculous, embarrassingly so. And it gets even more embarrassing when she lets down her hair and takes her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. In that day and age, a woman did not let her hair down. In fact, rabbinic writings from a century or two after Jesus indicated that a married woman whose hair was unbound in public was considered loose. It was sexually provocative. And it was even grounds for divorce. Your wife is out in public with her hair down, you can divorce her. And here is Mary, not in private, but in the setting of the entire village banquet, letting her hair down and wiping Jesus' feet. Embarrassing and shameful. What is everyone thinking? And the house is filled with a fragrance. You've walked by somebody who pumps the perfume a few too many times? I had a principal in elementary school who would walk past us, and about a minute later, she was still walking past us. This is not six or seven pumps of the perfume. This is an entire 11 bottles of perfume. The whole house is filled with a scent. It's a very public display. Everyone saw it, and everyone experienced it. Now, the strange thing about this is it seems like Jesus warns against this, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about fasting and praying and giving your alms in private so that nobody sees And one of the reasons why Jesus is saying this is because you can do things like fast and pray and give in a public way in order to get credit. Hey, people will see me praying. They'll see how generous I am. But you know that we can also do the opposite of that? We can do our fasting and our praying and our giving so much in public that it betrays that we're actually very worried what people think about us as well. Our motives is what matters. Mary's public display of worship of Jesus is done as if she's in private. She's not thinking about others' opinions of her. In fact, she's not thinking about herself at all. She's only thinking about Jesus. Mary values Jesus more than anything else in the world. And so she nard bombs him, dumps this whole thing on him, an act of total ridiculous devotion and worship. And Judas, Judas knows it's a ridiculous act of worship. He responds in verse 5. We read what what Judas says, who's in that room. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is a waste of money. It's a waste of nard. And Judas knows he would never do something like this. He would never be this frivolous and ridiculous. And he says something that's very good, right? This money should have been sold and given to the poor. And you know what? He's actually kind of aligned with what Jesus seemed to teach throughout the Gospels. You go read the Gospel of Luke, and you will see Jesus talking about the poor and giving to the poor again and again and again. And so, in a sense, Judas is partly right. But his motives and heart are in the wrong place. Judas doesn't value Jesus the most. 
He's after the money. He's not trying to obey and please and serve Jesus by saying we should give to the poor. He's at the complete opposite end of response to Jesus than Mary. And you know, Mary's response and Judas's response actually challenge our own worshiping life. And if you're in here today and you don't fully buy into the Christian thing and you think, okay, we're talking about worship, that's a whole Christian thing, here's, here's my statement to you as well as to everyone who's been a long-time Christian. All of us worship. It's not a matter of whether you worship, it's what do you worship and how. In other words, what's important to you? What is it that you're willing to sacrifice for? And because Judas brings it up, let's talk about money just for a little bit, okay? What you will easily spend money on reveals what you worship. What you will easily spend money on, you'll spend it without thinking, is an indication of what you actually worship. Will you spend money lavishly on your friends? It may indicate that you want their approval. It may. Are you willing to pour money out for new clothes? It may be that you're obsessed with appearances. Are you the sort that tucks all of your money away in savings? It may be because you value security and need to be in control. Where you easily put your money is an indication very often of what you actually value most. You will take your nard jar and pour it out for something, for whatever matters most. Jesus challenges the way we think about our money, calling us to open-handedness with all of our wealth, any of our gifts and resources. And he calls us to radical giving. But radical giving requires total trust in Jesus that he will take care of you, he will be with you, and he is enough. So the question and the challenge that this story gives to me is, is there a part of your finances that you control, and then you give God what's left? Or are you ready to pour it all out for Jesus? Another area that this passage calls me to and caused me to think about is what we do in corporate worship. So, we often talk about worship, and I'm talking about it today, about our whole life being set before God. But you know, another way of talking about worship, and some churches do this, they only talk about singing songs and hymns. But I actually want to talk about that for a second, okay? So, we sing songs every Sunday, and in fact, pretty much every church in the whole world does. And here's why. Think about what music is. Music is communal, it is creative, and it is incredibly powerful in every culture that has ever existed. Music is communal, it is creative, and it is powerful in every culture that has ever existed. Music, when you're listening to music that you like, whether it is a a band that you like or a composer that you love, what you find is your emotions are tapped into, your mind is engaged, often your body gets involved in it, and your whole will is channeled through it. You can see this when you're driving along in a car and somebody doesn't realize that you're next to them, 
and they are in a rock concert themselves, or they are composing Beethoven's Ninth themselves. And you hope that they're also watching the road, but they are moved in every possible way by the music that touches them deeply. Music has the power to affect and change us. There is a spiritual element to music. And when it comes to the church and to our faith, it's a global, historic, and biblical means of engaging our whole selves together with God. And honestly, it's not the style of music. You can be in choral music with organ, you can be in meditative, quiet music, or you can be in a rock show music. The question is, where is your heart in the midst of the singing and the song and the hymn? And so, while this is only about half of our church, because it's Palm Sunday and everyone's gone, you guys are invited from here on to sing and actually mean it. Now, for every person, that's going to look different. But in some way, it engages your body, it engages your mind, it engages your emotions as you're laying your will out before God and saying, I am yours. And I really do mean it doesn't matter what you do. You can be one of those people who is a touchdowner. You can be somebody who's holding a watermelon and grimacing. You can be a Catholic priest, a soldier. You can sit. You can kneel. Your body, the sounds that you make, your emotional response is for God. So I'm inviting you as you sing to be fixed on God, not what you're supposed to do, not how good you sound, not what anyone else thinks. Acting before God and in public as if you're in private. Mary pours out the nard and lets down her hair because she is totally focused on Jesus. And she invites us to do the same thing. Others in the narrative that we had read don't worship as Mary does. What they value distorts their view of Jesus and not the other way around. We see this in Judas pretty obviously, right? Judas values money and wealth, and so he sees Jesus as a means to get what he wants. It's how and why many people do approach Christianity and Jesus as a means to get what they want. The religious leaders in the story, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they see Jesus as a threat to their power and their status in the community. And what do they value? Power and status in the community. And so they refuse to believe Jesus' claims because he challenges their kingdom. The crowds the crowds are laying down their palms and they're shouting Hosanna. Why? Because they are looking for a liberator. They want a national political king, a Messiah who will overthrow Rome. And so they're willing to shout, Hosanna, here comes the king of Israel. But what they're doing is they're fitting Jesus into their assumptions about what a religious leader should be. It's the same thing that many of us do. 
And it begs the question, what is your view of Jesus? What are you actually worshiping? And is Jesus affecting your values? Or is your ultimate value shaping your view of Jesus? By the end of the week, Jesus is arrested, he is flogged, he is crucified, he is killed, and he is buried. This story starts in worship and in triumph as Jesus enters Jerusalem, and it ends in suffering, shame, disgrace, pain, and death. Worship is the best preparation for and endurance through crisis and suffering. Let me say that again. Worship is the best preparation for and endurance through crisis and suffering. Yes, you need prayer and people praying for you. Yes, you need theology that can grasp a suffering and a God. But ultimately, you need worship. Only Mary was prepared for the events that happened that Friday. Think about it. The crowds who are shouting Hosanna when the circumstances change for the worst, they're ready to kill Jesus. Judas meets the crisis of Jesus arrested and about to be killed, and he can't handle it. He kills himself. But it was women, women like Mary Magdalene, women like Jesus' own mother, women like Mary and Martha, who are the ones who, according to all the Gospels, are the ones at the cross. They don't leave. They're the ones who follow his body to the grave. And they're the ones who show up on that Easter morning expecting to anoint a dead body of the one they love. And therefore, they're the ones who get to see the tomb empty first. Total worship of God enables endurance. In other words, when you're worshiping God fully, and when He is what you worship most, you can actually be present through suffering and not simply try to avoid it and escape. Because God gives hope and assurance of life on the other side of crosses and graves. Here's, here's what it comes down to. You know, when you suffer, do you know what's ultimately happening? You're losing something. When you suffer, you're losing something. You're losing your health or your body if you're suffering sickness. You're losing your career or your money, your wealth, if your suffering has to do with economics. If it's relational strife or a death, you're losing family or you're losing friendships. In the midst of suffering, you lose something. You lose your normal, the way things are supposed to be. You lose control and realize you have no control. In the midst of suffering, you're always losing something. But when you are truly worshiping Jesus most, then what matters most to you cannot be taken away no matter what happens. If Jesus matters most to you, then the thing that matters most, Jesus, is always with you. You know that he loves you, 
and that he is ultimately in control of all circumstances in a way you never can be. If Jesus is your primary hope and your ultimate value, then your object of worship can't be diminished, broken, or stolen. You can lose your health. You can lose your money. You can lose your spouse. You cannot lose Jesus. Worship is the best preparation for and endurance through crisis and suffering. The opposite is also true. Suffering will reveal your true source of worship. So what do you worship? What are you not willing to pour out for Jesus? Your bank account? your kids' happiness and future, the freedom to do whatever you want. Nobody gets to ask questions. When I was thinking about this just the other day, I thought about an area of my life that I don't really think much about, but it's an area that I'm less willing to pour out, and it's my reputation. It's public perception of me. Now, look, I'm actually not a people pleaser. I don't care if people don't like me. But I do care if they respect me. And the challenge is, in a culture that is increasingly unbelieving and secular, where Jesus is not accepted as normative, it's going to be harder and harder to be public with my faith in Jesus. And the question is, if it continues on this trajectory, what will I do? Will I soften my stance? Will I hide my faith? will I worship Jesus fully? If I worship Jesus fully, it will likely cost me. It will cost me people's respect. Because my view, my beliefs will be illegitimate at some point. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Jesus said in verse 25 and 26, Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Serve and follow me. Lay down your life for my sake. Jesus says you want to truly live, don't serve approval or money or status or politics or people's opinions. Live for Christ alone. This is Holy Week, Palm Sunday through Good Friday to Easter and the Resurrection. But this Holy Week, as we point to the cross, examine yourself. Seek Jesus. If you want something to do, read John 12 through 21, which is where we're starting here and where we'll go to next week. It's Jesus' final week, according to the Gospel of John. Look at Jesus and who he is and what he offers you. Maybe even fast and pray for a day. Fast and pray to say, God, what do I need to be willing to pour out? And as you fast and pray, pray for the many sick and suffering in our community. And even as I'm saying this, I'm going to warn you. We've been talking today about our, what we value, what we worship, and pouring things out. Don't think about this as something more you need to do. 
Don't think about what we've been talking about for the past 20 minutes as you must try harder, you need more discipline, you need to really mean it when you sing songs. Don't leave today feeling guilty. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus crucified for you. Understand the depth of Jesus' love for you and the grace he offers you. The more you look to him, the more everything else pales in comparison. Yes, God wants your worries about your reputation, your worries about your finances, your worries about what other people think about you. God wants your need for status to be seen as beautiful or intelligent. God wants your need for success. He wants all of that. But he wants that because he wants you. And in order for you to want him, you need to know how much he wants you. I don't think, I don't think it was a work or an act of discipline for Mary to pour out this nard jar for Jesus. Nor was it a public show to let her hair down and wipe his feet. It was an overflow of what deep down in she valued most. It was giving all she had for what she wanted. Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, this week you rode into Jerusalem as king. By the end of the week, 2,000 years ago, you hung on a cross and died for us. It is so hard for us to live today without a a focus on ourselves and what we want. Give us eyes this week to see what we value in your place and enable us to have the willingness to pour out our most valued treasures for the one who is truly king. In whose name we pray, amen.